it's here. <laughs> All right, so uh, we're, we're actually covering two chapters today, uh, Judges chapter 4 and 5. Um, and the reason I'm going to go blow through both of these chapters uh, is because they're related to the same incident, the same event, um, and they're just written in two different styles. So it's happened a couple times through Scripture where you get a narrative followed by a song. So like Mary and the telling of Jesus' birth, Mary you know, is going to be, to- she's told that she's going to bear Jesus, and then she has a song that's recorded that Mary sings, Mary's song. Uh, the same as Moses in the Exodus. Uh, there's a song of Moses that's sung during the Exodus. So we've got a narrative piece and then a song incorporated to that. Uh, same is happening here with the story of Deborah and Barak. And we've got a story in chapter 4, followed by a song recounting the same events in chapter 5. So I'm actually going to read through uh, the song in chapter 5. I'm not going to like go through the song verse by verse, uh, because it's really just celebrating what has happened in the passage we're going to look at today. So I just want you to hear the words of this song, hear, hear what's celebrating. There's emphatic language, there's celebratory language, uh, there's honor given to the Lord in the midst of this song, uh, but then we'll go back through and read what really the song is about. So if you would read with me chapter 5. Then, then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took their lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and the travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, you who walk by the way. To the sound of the musicians at the watering places, there... There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates march the people of Israel. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break in, out in song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down march the remnant of the noble, the people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim their root marched uh, march down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Makur, march down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling of the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben there was great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with his ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risk their lives to the death, Naphtali too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh. By waters of Megiddo, they got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought, and by their courses they fought against Sisera. 
The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon, march on my soul with might. With loud beat, uh, within loud beat the horse's hooves with galloping, galloping on his steeds. Curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord, curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked her for water, she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer indeed, her, she herself answers. Had they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man, spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might, and the land had rest for forty years. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the opportunity to study and uh, be encouraged by it, to, uh, to preach it and to proclaim it over our hearts. Um, may you um, strengthen our minds with knowledge of, uh, of your people, and may you stir our hearts toward action in our lives uh, based on what we can learn here. Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit to guide and direct um, this time, may you be lifted up, may you be exalted in our hearts. Lord, help us to bow our hearts before you, to know you are Lord Almighty, conqueror of all enemies that may, lay, may stand before us. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so there's, like, there's a lot of things we could go into in this song that are helpful and good, and we could like, pick it apart for a long time. Uh, but hopefully you hear some tones in it, some celebration that's going on, that the Lord is the one that has defeated uh, his enemies. He has come forward with his people and defeated his enemies. A couple things to point out. Uh, you saw Deborah and Brock celebrating that some of the people didn't. Some of the people of Israel stayed back. Asher and Dan, uh, Gilead and Reuben did not engage in the fight when they were called up. But the rest of the tribes did. And, and so there's this calling in the song to say, okay, we, we called you all to come and fight, but some stayed back and some, why did you stay back? What were you waiting for? Why is there, why is there searching in your heart? Um, and so the, there is a call to us today to step forward into what God has called us to do uh, for his kingdom. And I think you'll see that throughout uh, the passage as we go through. Um, one thing I wanted to note is that I'm, I'm including Shamgar this week, the one-verse judge, the single-verse deliverer Shamgar, uh, because Deborah actually includes him as a, a, a what's the word, um, um, uh, it's like the, what's the word for a person that's uh, in the same time frame as you? Uh, ah, shoot. You know what I'm talking about? A contemporary. That's it. Yes. I knew Jason would get it. Somehow, somehow that worked. All right. Um, a contemporary. Uh, Shamgar is a contemporary of Deborah. And even in her song, she says, in the days of Shamgar, these things happened. Uh, so Shamgar is one who went and killed 600 Philistines around the same time period. He also saved Israel, uh, presumably in the same pattern as the rest of the judges. 
Um, but he's, again, indicated in the Song of Deborah as a contemporary of Deborah and Barak. Both Deborah and Barak come after Ehud. And so based on the cycle we're seeing in Judges, what has happened is the pe- Ahad has died, and now the people have fallen back into their ways of instead of worshiping the Lord Almighty who continues to save them, rather worshiping the gods of the land instead. And so we uh, find ourselves in Judges chapter 4, verse 1. Judges 4.1 says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ahud died. You're seeing the pattern you know, show itself. After Joshua died, the people turned away from the Lord. After Othniel came and lived for 40 years and died, the people turned away uh, unto the idols of the land. After Ahud died, uh, for 80 years the land had peace, and then after that, the people turned and worshipped the idols of the land of the land. You're seeing this pattern come forward that as long as there's a leader in place to show us what it's like, the people had faith. But their faith was kind of like only through a leader, right? Anyone ever seen that happen before? It happens way too often, right? That a preacher is the one you have faith through, or a priest is the one you have faith through, instead of you having the relationship that's intended for you to be direct with your Father in heaven through the Son, Jesus Christ. You're not to get any power from me. Like, I can't give you any power. The Holy Spirit is the one that gives you power as a Christian. Um, he's seen fit to give me some sort of authority that I somewhat despise but have embraced based on calling. Um, but he's given me some authority in this place. But he hasn't given me power to hand out to people. He gives the power, okay? Um, and so, We should never find our strength through another leader. We should find our strength through the Lord. And so what has happened for these people over and over again is when the leader passes away, they turn to the gods of the land instead of serving their God in heaven. And so it says, verse 2, And then the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Uh, Sisera is going to be the main character throughout this time, so he's a, you know, a a suzerain or a, or a, a general for Jabin, um, and he's the one that will be talking about the leader of the armies that we'll be talking about through this time. Uh, verse 3, we see this, The people cried out to the Lord for help, for he, that is Sisera and, and Jabin, had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. For 20 years they sat, serving the gods of the land, in slavery to Jabin, the king of Canaan. And finally, they cry out. Again, this isn't a repentance. This is a cry. There's a difference, right? We've been talking about that. There's a difference between just crying out in the pain of your situation and coming before the Lord Almighty and repenting before him and asking for him to show up. So the Lord, in in spite of the fact that there's no repentance in this cry, comes in mercy to the people and uh, hears their cry. One thing that you want to point out, and we've talked about it, I think we might have talked about it in the intro period of Judges, um, is that here the strength of this king, Jabin, is in his 900 chariots, which is impressive that he's got this military might, but this military might has has oppressed the people of Israel for this time, and they've seen this this, uh, leader as too powerful. But if they had just remembered the promise about the land, the Lord has ability over any kind of strength that may stand before us. Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. 
When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. We're not to be a people that look around at our situation, uh, our circumstances, our enemies, whatever it may be, and go, eh, they're bigger than me, so it's too big, I'm not going to fight. Right? We're never to be that way. The Lord says, if there's an enemy in front of you, then the Lord Almighty is stronger than that enemy. You don't have to look at your own strength. You have to look at the Lord's strength, and he will fight your battle. So that's not the case for Israel at this time. They are under the hand of Jabin. They cry out to the Lord. And in this case, uh, verse 4, we find um, the one that has risen up uh, to confront the situation. And that's Deborah. Verse 4 says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. So I'm going to break this up into three little pieces. Um, Deborah, first was a prophetess. Her title, her role, was prophetess. Okay? Uh, the role of prophetess is an established role for a female in the kingdom of God. Old Testament, New Testament, prophetess is a role that the Lord has designated for females. Uh, we see, we see um, evidence of this all over the place. Miriam in Exodus 15, 20 uh, was a prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. Uh, Huldah, 2 Kings 22, 14. Uh, so Hilkiah the priest, and Ahakim, and Akbor, and Shippen, and As, there's so many, so many names, Ase, uh, went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, uh, the son of Tikvah, the son of Har- uh, so many. Okay, so she's a prophetess. Hold as a prophetess. I'm, I'm leaving it at that. Uh, Noadah in Nehemiah 6, 14. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Noadah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Again, Isaiah's wife, who's unnamed, is, is a prophetess. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1 to 4. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet, write on it common characters belonging to Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, and I will get a reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberachiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. So Isaiah went to the prophetess, that is his wife, and had a child. Then the Lord called to me and said, call his name Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Isaiah's wife was a prophetess. Uh, we have it on record in the New Testament. Female prophetesses. prophetesses. Uh, Anna in the temple, uh, Luke 2, verses 36 to 37. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, uh, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband for seven years, from whom, when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. So everyone doing the math there? She was married for seven years, her husband passed away, and then she was a prophetess in the temple for like 70 years. Okay. Um, and then Acts 21, verses 8 and 9. Philip's four daughters were also prophetess. On the next day we departed, came to Caesarea, and when we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Deborah was a prophet, a female prophet, that is a prophetess. Okay, Deborah was a prophet. 
this is a role that is designated for women in our community, right? In, our, in the church, uh, in the Old Testament, there is a role of prophetess. Deborah's also the wife of Lapidoth. So she's married to Lapidoth. She's a wife. There's a relationship there, right? Um, that's the second thing. And then the third thing is that Deborah, she is a prophetess, but she was judging Israel. Verse 5 says, She, that is Deborah, used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Um, so she sat under this palm, named for a namesake of hers, which is Deborah, Rebecca's maidservant, who had passed away, and she buried, they buried her under an oak between, uh, near Bethel. So likely, this is the place where she was. She went back to the namesake, her namesake, Deborah, her place, and people came to her for judgment. Um, this type of judgment is akin to the judgment that was given to, um, uh, given to, given to Moses to hand down. So you might remember Moses was kind of leading millions of Israelites out of, uh, out of Egypt, right? And it turns out, I know this is surprising, but they didn't get along all the time. Yeah, a million people, and there was actually conflict. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. It's crazy. Crazy, a million people, conflict. Yeah, can't believe it. Uh, yep, so what was happening was Moses really needs to be spending time with the Lord, but instead is consumed daily with uh, people coming to him to resolve disputes. And so Jethro, his father-in-law, comes to him in Exodus 18, 21 to 23, and says, Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. The Lord had set up a role called a judge <laughs> that was intended for able men, men who fear God, men who are trustworthy and won't take a bribe, to step up and fear God and decide disputes between their brothers and help them come to resolutions. So the Lord has, I believe, in his wisdom, created roles for us to play in his kingdom. Uh, some of those roles are anatomically obvious, okay? Um, for instance, a man cannot give birth to a child. I don't know if you knew that, but that's true. Uh, that's a thing. Uh, men can't give birth to children. There's an anatomically different role for us as men and women. We're going to spend some time hashing that out after service today, so that's going to be fun. Um, Similarly, he has also given some roles in spiritual authority and leadership. And these are areas which are less clear to us in our culture, uh, in our place and time. Scripture testifies to us of a division of roles based on gifting, based on gender, based on age, and all sorts of things. We believe here, I'm speaking on, be on the behalf of Restoration Church, uh, we believe that there's a priesthood in the Old Testament um, and that there's elders in the church, 
and husbands and wives in the home, and there's a certain authority given to roles in that midst. We believe that only men can be elders. We believe that only men were priests in the Old Testament. Uh, we believe that husbands are responsible for their household. So we believe that God has given spiritual authority to roles in our home. We also believe, as Galatians attests, that male and female, none is greater than the other. In the image of God, male and female were created. Roles, differing roles, do not equate to a difference in value or strength. Okay? So let's get that part clear. But we do believe God, in his wisdom and in his intention, has defined roles for us. Now, a really big point throughout this passage, is why I'm kind of belaboring this a little bit, is that the Lord can and does work outside this framework when he sees fit. The Lord can and does work outside this framework when he sees fit. Okay? It's exceptional. It's not the ideal. There are exceptions. This passage outlines two instances where a man is not stepping into the role he was called to. And in absence of a willing and able man, God, in this story, uses two women to fill a void of leadership. It's my opinion that Deborah was a prophetess. Well-established role in Scripture for a female to step in to be a prophet, to speak mightily what the, what the Lord may say in a moment. But she was also functioning as a judge, a role that was intended for a man. We'll go back to it later, but this isn't like a dog on Deborah that she shouldn't be there. This is a dog on the men, all the men of Israel. The whole country, there's not a man that can stand up and judge in Israel. So Deborah fills the role. We should take it to heart as men to go, whoo, there's not a man who fears God among the people of Israel? Doesn't take anything away from what Deborah did. It looks at our hearts as men and goes, dang, not a man in all of Israel would step up and say, yeah, this is right and this is wrong. So there's two examples here of that uh, that I think are shown. The first example is here with Deborah. Deborah. By gifting and calling, she's a prophetess. It's a well-established role for females and the people of God throughout the Old Testament and New. It's a speaking role meant for the encouragement and instruction of the people of God. But it comes under the authority in the Old Testament, uh, under the priesthood, and in the New Testament, under an eldership. Um, however, in the void of any man who fears God or is trustworthy to the office, Deborah is also judging in Israel rather than, say, her husband, Lapidoth, what you doing, right? Where are you in the story, Lapidoff? Why aren't you coming forward, man of God? Or Barak, like why isn't Barak himself standing forward and judging the way he ought to judge? So as you see Deborah speak throughout the rest of the story, uh, you actually see her speaking not as a judge, but in her God-ordained role as a prophetess. She is prophesying what is about to happen. So moving forward, Judges 4, so this is the first instance of, uh, of this example. Uh, Judges 4, 6, and 7. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam. So she calls out Barak from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, Has not the Lord, 
probably saying, like, you might have heard this already, Barack, but you're, you haven't stepped up to what the Lord is trying to tell you, okay? So I'm going to tell you, because I'm a prophetess. Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? He's, he has commanded you. Not like I'm commanding you, but the Lord has already commanded you, Barak. Has not the Lord commanded you, Barak, to go and gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? Has he not already told this to you? He's telling it to me. He spoke to me, the prophetess, and now I am telling you, Barak, that the Lord has already told this to you, and you're not listening to the Lord. Ouch. And she goes on to say, and I will draw out Sisera. I always was, like for a long time I was reading this, that Deborah was the one to draw out Sisera. But she's speaking, have to remember, she's functioning as a prophetess. So she is speaking on behalf of the Lord, what the Lord is saying. So when she says, uh, go and gather your men in Mount of Tabor, taking 10,000 from Nathalie and Zebulon, and I will draw out Sisera. That is, the Lord will draw out Sisera. The Lord's going to work out the situation that Sisera will be drawn out. Not Deborah. Deborah's just the prophet. She's telling Barak what's about to happen. So I, the Lord, will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So the Lord has told Barak, I am going to give the leader of this army into your hand, Barak. You are going to take his life. You're going to defeat this one that commands 900 chariots, you, Barak. This is what has been told to Barak. And Deborah's now telling it to Barak. So he's heard it once. Now Deborah's telling him a second time what he's already heard. <laughs> okay? And then Barak responds to the confirmation of what the Lord has already told him through what Deborah is telling him by saying this. So you can see, like, he's not listening. But the Lord. Verse 8, Barak says to her, If you will go with me, that is Deborah, Deborah, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. You see, in Barak's head, he thinks he needs Deborah, the one who speaks on behalf of God, the prophetess, to assure his success. Deborah's not trying to assure his success. She's not trying to be the general. She's trying to say what God has said and say it again to Barak for him to fulfill what God has called him to do. And Barak thinks, I need, I need this speaker to come with me. I need the messenger. Deborah is just a messenger. She's a prophetess. She isn't the one that's going to direct this battle. The Lord has just revealed the battle to her. There's no strength in her being present with Barak. The Lord has already assured Barak's victory, and the Lord has already spoken, and it is good as done. But Barak contests and says, if you'll go with me, then I'll go. If you don't go with me, then I'm not going. So, we get Judges 4.9. Deborah then says, presumably the Lord is telling her in this moment to say, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. At this point, we don't know who that woman is. 
this judgment on Barak for basically not believing the fullness of what God revealed to him concerning Sisera um, results in a change. Because if you go with me, then I'll go. If you don't go with me, I'm not going. Okay, that's fine. You're not going to get the glory for this battle then. Someone else is going to take out Sisera. And it's going to be the hand of a woman. This judgment for questioning the revelation given by God uh, brings to recollection for me, a recollection for me, uh, Zechariah in the temple, right? Gabriel comes to Zechariah and says, hey, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna bear this son, and this son is going to be the forerunner of the Christ, okay? You're 80 years old, and you're about to have a son, okay? Gabriel, the angel, shows up to him physically in the temple and tells him this, and he says, how am I going to know? Right? What? And Gabriel's like, I mean, I came, I like, man, I, like, do you see me? Like, are you not, like, everyone else, uh, like, cowers in fear when angels show up. Zachary's like, I got questions. <laughs> he says, how am I going to know this will be? And he says, Zechariah says, because of your unbelief, you're, you're not going to hear. Until your son is born, you will not be, here, be able to hear. I'm going to deafen you this whole time. And so, uh, so uh, Zechariah uh, goes deaf. He comes out of the temple, and he can't, he's like trying to motion that he's seen something great, and no one is understanding what he's doing, and he doesn't speak until John the Baptist is born. It, this is what reminds me here. Barak, in the same way, God had lined out something that was going to happen in the will of God. This powerful moment is going to happen. Come hell or high water, this is going to happen. And Brock's like, yeah, I don't know. If Deborah comes with me, I'll do it. And the Lord's like, all right. So, so this is kind of the setup of the moment. In verses 11 to 16, we have uh, the description of the battle, which starts with this kind of note that seems obscure, but it isn't. Um, verse 11, now Heber the Kenite, separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and it pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Nananam, whatever, Nananam, uh, which is near Kadesh, whatever it is. Um, so Judges brings up Moses, okay? It's important. <laughs> you don't just randomly throw around the name of Moses when you're writing down scripture, okay? Um, there's intent in it. You bring up the name of Moses. Heber the Kenite has separated from the Kenites who were descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. They knew Moses. Okay, this isn't very many generations later. This is like maybe three generations later. This might be like between 80 and 120 years removed from Moses. Okay, so you might have heard story tell of your great-grandpa or your great-great-grandpa, right? Like you might have heard stories of that generation. You might know some history better than you know, say, 500 years ago, right? And so Moses is known. His lineage is known. His people are known. And... Heber, the Kenite, separates from this people and rather allies himself with Jabin and Sisera, the enemies of Israel. Verse 12 goes on to say, When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, was headed up to Mount Tabor. Who do you think told Sisera that Barak was on the move? Heber, the Kenite. Heber the Kenite is an informant. He is separated from the people of Israel. He is separated from his alliance with the people of Israel and has now become the one who tells 
that Barak is on the move. He tips off Sisera's hand, hey, you need to go, because Barak is assembling thousands of army men against you near Kadesh, or near Mount Tabor, sorry. So Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from, uh, from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. So Sisera assembles his army. And then Deborah, again, she's with Barak, says, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out, that is Sisera collectively, like his army, because we know that Sisera's not going into Barak's hand. Um, Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots of the army to Harasheth Hagayim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Again, on the battlefield, what is Deborah's role? Not to fight, but rather to prophesy again to Barak, I know I already told you this back when we were there, and it was probably enough, but okay, I'll tell you again. <laughs> right? This battle is the Lord's. He's going to fight these people. He's given them into your hand. And sure enough, the Lord goes before them and destroys the 900 chariots of this army with the hand of Barak and his army. And now for the good stuff. <laughs> oh man, this is gruesome. Uh, so verses 17 to 21 are the story of the fulfillment of what Deborah said. Deborah said to Brock, since you questioned the Lord's ability to do this without me around, you're not going to get the glory of killing the king, uh, this, this leader, this general Sisera. Instead, a woman will get the glory. And kind of in a twist, it's not Deborah, it's somebody else, another woman comes up which is also tied to her little footnote above about Heber, the Kenite. Verse 17, But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. Again, he's the informant to the house of Jabin and Sisera. Okay. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, and do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her to the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes ask, and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. So lie, right? <laughs> Cover up my presence. Please lie. I am not here. It's known that he is hiding from an enemy. But Jael, the wife of Heber, again emphasizing he is the wife of Heber, the one who had separated from Moses' clan, like Moses' alliance. She took a tent peg, took a hammer in her hand, then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And so he died. Obviously. If not, if not, so obvious. Um, verse 22, And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went to her tent, and there lay Sisera, dead with a tent peg 
in his temple. So a couple things real quick to note. Like, Jael is married to Heber, the Kenite. Heber had separated from the people of God. Jael knows enough about Moses, about the people of Israel, about the God of Israel, to say, Sisera and Jabin are not it, okay? I think we ought to look at Jael the same way we look at Rahab, right, who hid spies and said, your God is God. Like, your God's in control here, and I know that, and, and I'm going to cover you. Please spare my family when you come, and when you do come and destroy Jericho, please spare my family. And the Lord does. Jael knows these things, and the Lord uses her instead of Barak to take out Sisera, the general. And in what gruesome fashion, right? Like, this is something you would expect from Gladiator, right? Or, or 300, the movie 300. Or like, this is like something like you expect some beefy man to go up to Sisera, hold his head down to the ground, and just like plunk him with a tent peg. Like, you, that's what you expect would happen. But no, this woman is so strongly against what has happened she is like, Sisera's coming. I have an opportunity, actually, to take this guy out. He is evil. He is evil in the flesh. And she brings him in, hides him, and kills him in this crazy fashion, right? And then Barak shows up, and she knows who he's looking for. It says, here he is. He's already dead. You were seeking, you maybe were seeking to grasp onto that little bit of glory that might be left, but I've already done the deed, and he is gone. In conclusion of the, you know, the, the scene here, verses 23 and 24 wrap up what has happened. And really the summary point of what has happened and really where the glory ought to go to in what has happened. So, so in conclusion, verse 23, on that day God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. It wasn't Barak. It wasn't Deborah. It wasn't Jael. It wasn't the, the armies of Israel. So on that day, God subdued Jabin. This is the Lord's doing. He is the one that orchestrated these events. He is the one that said, you got 900 chariots? No problem. Boop, you're done. Like It's not a problem to him. It's a problem to us. Because we look at the exteriors and we're, we're anxious about how big the thing is around us. And God's like, if you would just yield your heart to me. The Lord has done it. So a few things to take from this gruesome passage. Um, first is this, reflecting on the oppression of Israel by Jabin and his 900 chariots. The size of and the strength of the enemy that may be surrounding us should never be a deterrent to our obedience. The size and strength of the enemy, the size and strength of the, uh, the whatever the situation you might, that might feel like it's surrounding your head, or uh, the actual enemy that might be around and present, like the size of the thing should be of no concern to us as people of God. We serve the creator of the universe. There is no enemy he cannot defeat. And so we don't throw in the towel 
against sin because it's just too hard to fight sin. These, these desires inside me are so strong and so heavy against me that, you know what, I'm not going to fight those things because it's just too hard. I'm just going to do what I feel like because it's easier. God says, no, I know it feels hard. I know it feels like it's surrounding you and pressing in on you. And that's the case where you've got to drop your strength and let the Lord fight your battle. We don't throw in the towel against sin because it's a hard fight to fight. We don't throw in the towel against a calling because there's obstacles in the road. You, like, you don't think God saw the obstacles coming up in front of the people of Israel as they are fighting? He knows there's 900 chariots of iron. He knows that. He knows that Barak's a doofus and can't be convinced of what he needs to step in to do. He knows that. He knows there's obstacles in the calling. You should not be surprised when God calls you to something and like the immediate reaction is, wow, there's a big boulder right there. How do I get around it? Do not be caught off guard. God is a God who very often is going to test your calling and your faith in your calling immediately when he calls you to it. I want you to go this way. Well, there's a cliff there. What are you talking about, God? It's like, just trust me. I got this. I know where the bridge is. It's fine. Chill. But so often we just throw in the towel because an obstacle has come up. We're like, eh, too tough. Going to go the other way. Like Jonah, right? You should go to Nineveh. Nah, those guys don't like you at all. I'm going to go on a ship. I'm going to go on a cruise. It's going to be great. <laughs> he went on a cruise, all right. <clears throat> We don't look at the size of the enemy or the, or the size of the conflict around us and decide that that should be a, de a deterrent to our obedience to the Lord. That's the first thing. The people of Israel looked at Jabin and they said, you know what, if you can't beat him, join him. Okay. Second, whatever the Lord calls us to do, it is his strength that will accomplish it. Whatever the Lord calls us to do, it is his strength that will accomplish it. I know this story was probably a lot to follow. There's like a ton of names. You got Barak and Deborah and Lapidoth and Jabin and Sisera and Jael and the soldiers and Heber the Kenite and, the, and Hobab and Moses. We're like throwing around all these names. I'm sorry if it was hard to follow. We got all the tribes of Israel listed. We got a song in there. Like, it's a lot. There's a lot of players in the story, but Judges 4.23, so on that day, God subdued Jabin. God is the one who accomplished this work. God is the one that sold Israel into the hand of Jabin in the first place because they wouldn't walk in his ways. And God is the one who responded in, the mercy, in, the, in mercy to the cries, not repentance, to the cries of his people and rose up Barak and Deborah and Jael to defeat Israel's enemies. We can tend to um, want to when we know that, that, that God is the one doing it, to sit back and wait and go, well, if God's going to do it, I'll just wait him out. Let him force our hand to do what he wants to do because he's going to do it anyways regardless, so let him do it the way he wants to do it. And then in disobedience along the way, we just come up with all kinds of excuses all the time to resist God's will. Okay? God had already spoken to Barak. He told him. 
He told Barak personally, hey, you're going to defeat this army. And it's Deborah to come to him and say, you know that God told you this because he is telling me what he told you again, and you can confirm that you've already heard this before, so now's your second chance. Do you believe me? <laughs> right? He's like, ah, but can you come with me? Right? We do this all the time. We can tend to sit back and want to force God to do his will. God has a role for us to play. He has a place for us to, uh, to fill in his kingdom. And we shouldn't just in like fatalism not seek out what the Lord would have us do. Listen, I know that the Lord is unclear sometimes. And he's quiet a lot of times. You're like, Lord, I'm ready for you to speak. I'm waiting for you to speak. I don't know what you're going to say. All this. I, I get that. I get the waiting game. I think you all know that I understand the waiting game. Okay? But while you're waiting, be sure that you aren't waiting passively. Because there's a difference between waiting passively and waiting actively. When you're actively waiting on the Lord, your life is completely surrounded and caught up in the Lord and His glory and His fame and His will. So if you're like waiting, but like just dabbling in the world, waiting for God to show up, then you're missing the waiting here. You're passively waiting for God to intervene. God wants you to actively wait on him, to grab hold of his precepts, to grab hold of his word, to grab hold of his people, and wait on the Lord to show up, because he's going to show up, okay? He is going to show up, but he's not going to show up like when you're not doing what he's called you to do, okay? If you're out there just living the American dream, God's not like talking to you. You're caught up in an American dream, okay? But if you're in the church, you're in the body, you're in the kingdom of God, you're serving your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're reading his word, you're praying, you're worshiping the Lord, guess what? That is actively waiting. And so be it if he tarries in telling you what you ought to do. Be caught up in what God is doing in the kingdom of God, exalting himself through the body of Christ. We have a role to play. We don't sit back and shirk responsibility. We step into what God has called us to do and be until he says, now the cloud is lifted. Now the fire is moving and I need you to go here. If you wait passively over here, then when God shows up with a prophetess to tell you what he's already told you, you're going to be like, can you come with me? Because I could use some help. I don't really know what I'm doing. But if you are actively waiting, listening for the Lord's voice, trying to understand what the Lord's voice sounds like, guess what? When he shows up, you're going to hear it and go. We have a great tendency to sit back and just wait for God to force his will upon us. God didn't work like that with us. He wants to work with us in concert with us. He wants to Brock, Brock to hear his voice and go, yes, we can defeat the 900 chariots because God said we could back in Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. <laughs> he should know. He should know. And we should too. But God is going to do it. Don't let us not be found boasting in our strength because everything we have is from the Lord. Let us cling to him. Let us wait on him in an active sense. Let him move in, our, in his timing and in his way upon our lives. 
Um, finally, this one's for the men. It's going to start with the women, though. Um, but the main point is for the men. So listen up, guys. Sorry. Uh, listen, the Bible celebrates great women of faith. And actually, in contrast to other writings of the ancient Near East, elevates the position of women in society and culture. Um, the Bible celebrates such women as Sarah and Miriam and Rahab and Deborah and Mary and Anna and Tabitha and the daughters of Philip and more and more and so on. Okay? The Bible celebrates women of faith. But the story here is about because of a lack of faith in men, God rose up women in their place. He rose up Deborah to speak when a man should have been speaking, but didn't because there was no one that had faith in God, no man that had faith in God. In the people of Israel, <laughs> right? God raised up Jael because Barak didn't believe what he was told by the Lord and then by Deborah from the Lord. It's not to minimize the role of women in any way, okay? But Deborah and Jael are not a, a, a typecast of women in authority, but rather a judgment against men who did not take the authority that they should have been taking. There should have been men who rose up in the line of Moses to say, we can help judge disputes. We know the Lord, and we will help you solve these disputes. Well, I'll take 10, I can take 50, I can take 100, etc. That should have been the case, but none was found. And so Deborah the prophetess was judging in Israel instead of Lapidoth or Barak or any list of the men of all the tribes. None. So this challenge or this passage presents a serious challenge to us men. Deborah and Jael stepped up, and we celebrate their obedience to the Lord in that. However, they did so because the men who should have stepped up did not step up. Jael should not be an assassin, okay? I mean, that's the, my opinion. I don't think that we should have, you know, a woman out there nailing people with tent pegs. I don't think that's the place. I'm sorry if I'm old-fashioned, but... I don't think that's the intention. They did so because men didn't step up. Our culture now is lacking in strong and faithful men. We have all kinds of problems with this. It's well categorized, the problem of fatherlessness in our, in our midst. Um, we have one problem of fathers who walk away from responsibility of raising children, whether physically or by being present but unaccounted for. Okay? Um, we have another problem in our churches of men who will not step up to disciple the next generation. Okay? And this passage is a challenge to us as men to look around at where God has placed us as men and go, I need to be, if I'm a father, present for my children, present for my wife. And not just physically, but fully, there in spirit and body. Take this passage as a challenge to you, men, to step into the role where God has called you to be. Yeah, you're not equipped. Yeah, you're not ready. 
Yeah, you don't have enough money to provide. Yeah, you don't have enough time to give. Yeah, you don't have enough gifting to steward here. You don't have enough. But the point is, God does, and all he's called you to be is faithful and present and strong in the midst. And so, men, we cannot make excuses or comparisons any longer. We must seek the Lord and lead where the Lord has called us to lead, whether it's in our homes or our, or our churches or our friendships or our jobs. Look around you. There is a spiritual war afoot. There is a real battle going on. And so quickly we're numbed by our desires. And God's saying, take up the fight. There are 900 chariots out there to dispose. Please do it. And instead of that, so many times we're enslaved to the gods of the land. So it's on us to lead the charge against the enemy in our midst, despite the challenges that that presents. This passage should challenge our hearts as men to never let this happen. To be the men of God that God has called us to be. And man, I praise God that in spite of our uh, weakness, in spite of the fact that men don't show up, God cares enough about his mission to the nations and the gospel's proclamation to say, okay, fine, guys, you don't want to go? I'm going to send a woman instead. And it's going to be fine because I'm God. It shouldn't have been this way, but I'm going to do it because I'm God. Okay? But men, take this as a challenge from this passage, and I take it myself as a challenge. We've got to step into the things God has called us to step into. And yeah, you're not equipped. You're not ready. You don't have all the skills. You're not, you're not prepared. Your dad didn't prepare you. His dad didn't prepare him. His dad's dad didn't prepare him. His dad's dad, dad didn't prepare him. Okay, but your father is in heaven. And he is king over all nations. And so what he has given you to steward, he has seen fit to give you to steward. And so listen to what he says to you and step into what he's called you to steward. We're fighting a battle that God has given us, and we would be um, amiss to look around and think that this life is all about just satisfying ourselves and gaining comfort in our position or our feats. But this battle is about the Lord. He is mightily going on with or without us, and he is inviting us in to come and be part of the battle that he has called us to be a part of. And so look around at yourself. You know, maybe the Lord wants to do something big in your life in the coming years. That may be the case. Maybe the Lord wants to call you somewhere. We've been talking about conversations with people like, hey, I need to be going this way or that way or whatever. Like, maybe the Lord's leading me on some stuff. That may be true, okay? But guess what? You've got to be an active participant in the kingdom of God to be ready to hear what God wants you to do. If you're just passively in the corner thinking, yeah, God's going to do it, so I'll just let him do it. Yeah, Justin, Justin's over in the Justin's over there in the corner, passively waiting for God to show up. <laughs> he gave me the eyes. Sorry. We can't be passively waiting for God to just force his will. He's calling you to rise up. It's very simple. Step into his body and contribute to what he is doing. 
Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your word. We're thankful uh, for the opportunity it is to be challenged by it. Um, even when it's convoluted and hard and messy and there's tent pegs and stuff, we're, we're thankful for it, God. And uh, we just pray, Lord, that we would be a people that um, is ready to hear from you. God, I pray that um, we would take a lesson from Barak and that instead of ignoring what you said, they would hear it the first time. And we thank you that you are a God who is so merciful that you would come and, and tell us a second time, Lord, and I pray that we would listen then. And God, we, we even thank you that in spite of the fact that we doubted the second time you spoke, um, that you would do your will through us even so. And God, in the end of it, I pray, as in the song of Deborah and Barak, that we would give you praise. And say, yeah, I didn't step up the way I ought to step up, but you know what? The Lord stepped up even still. Praise be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. God, I pray for our hearts. I pray especially for the men in this room and the men in our church, um, the men in the church as a whole that we would not passively sit by and let the culture just sweep us away into its will, but rather that we would cling to the fellowship of believers, the reading of your word, the presence of Holy Spirit, the intercessory, intercessory prayer on behalf of our families, our coworkers, our nation, and that we would fight this battle. I thank you for times of rest. I thank you for joys that you give us. But Lord, may our lives not be consumed with stuff of this earth. May they be consumed and organized around your glory and your kingdom and its advance. Where and when you call us. Lord, thank you for Christ. Who willingly stepped in to this mess listened perfectly to his Father in heaven. And when, he, when you told him to start his ministry, he started it. And when you told him the cross was coming, he went. And when the soldiers nailed him to the cross, he stayed. He could have gone at any moment, but he stayed in obedience that our sins would be taken on and crucified there. We thank you and praise you. May we seek to be obedient in the likeness of Christ and follow him all of our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.